Welcome to Building Bridges, ACMCU's premier podcast where we discuss, debate, and examine contemporary issues facing Muslim-Christian relations in the United States and abroad. I'm your host, Andrew Condon, Digital Communications Manager for ACMCU. The Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding was founded in 1993 at Georgetown University with a mission to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West, building bridges of understanding between Islam and Christianity. In this program, we will speak to experts, faith leaders, authors, and influencers about how their work is shaping the discourse and fostering interfaith dialogue within their respective communities. Dr. Paul Salam is president of the Middle East Institute and he focuses on issues of political change, transition, and conflict, with a particular emphasis on the countries of the Levant and Egypt. Dr. Salem recently came to visit us here at ACMCU to give a talk entitled Fights, Friends, and Factions, The Politics of Christian Communities Within Lebanon. We got a chance to talk with him, where he discussed these issues and more on this episode of Building Bridges. So, Dr. Salam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us here on Building Bridges. Thank you for having me, Andrew. So you did just give a presentation here at ACMCU Mm -hmm. about uh, Christians in Lebanon and some of the politics and uh, sociocultural changes throughout history. So before we get into that, though, could you by chance introduce yourself and how you came to study this specific topic in general? Well, first of all, I'm glad to be here on this podcast, as well as at Georgetown University. I was invited uh, by Dr. Yvonne Haddad, who is a professor here and an old friend, uh, to give a talk on that topic of the politics of the Christian communities of Lebanon. Uh, it's not actually an area of my study. I, I've studied political philosophy and the history of political thought in the Arab world. I work on Arab transitions and uh, international relations of the Middle East. But I am Lebanese, and I've you know studied Lebanon as part of what I study in general. S- and I've lived and worked in Lebanon, and of course I care a lot about it. Uh, and that's, you know, that's one aspect of the country's reality and history. Uh, so that's what got me to that topic. So the uh, the study of the history of the Levant and the sociocultural challenges in the region are specific, but. From a sociological perspective, does the history and the socio-political elements in the Levant, does that present a challenge to, to scholars because of the complexity? Well, it's, it's challenging because it's, uh, it's vast uh, in its historical depth. That, that, you know, this part of the world is the oldest inhabited part of the planet. Uh, civilization first emerged in Mesopotamia and Egypt uh, as organized civilization. Uh, the great religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all emerged in this small patch of land. Uh, the first states emerged. Uh, and when you talk about the Levant, which began to sort of emerge as a concept maybe in the 19th century, but it described uh, a patchwork of communities uh, in areas now we call Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, uh, under the Ottoman Empire, uh, that was a very culturally uh, rich, ethnically rich, uh, in terms of religious communities, very rich uh, for the 500 years of Ottoman rule and the centuries before that as well. Um, so it's a very complex, uh, multi-layered uh, set of stories and histories. And then you come up against the harsh realities of the last 18 or the last 15 years, uh, 
particularly after the invasion of Iraq, which devastated uh, certainly many of the minority communities of Iraq, uh, Yazidis and Christians in particular, uh, were decimated. Um, and then uh, that also plague, as it were, uh, came into Syria as well. And the Syrian civil war, where maybe the minorities have survived better, but the whole country has been devastated. So the, the very modern history of the Levant is very, very troubled and very, very difficult, uh, uh, and let alone the history of Lebanon itself, which had its own civil war between 1975 and 1990. Uh, so a very troubled modernity. So in your talk uh, today, you talked about Mount Lebanon and its factor into the theological and sociological power systems uh, in Lebanon from the onset of the Maronite movement. Could you perhaps touch on, for those who may not know, what, what important historical and theological place does Mount Lebanon play in the political culture of Lebanon since the beginning? Yeah. Let me try to s summarize a very long history. But uh, uh, the brief version of that is a couple of things that um, the Maronite community, which uh, dates all the way back to the 4th and 5th centuries of the Christian era, um, uh, particularly made a move into the mountains of Lebanon, uh, which were really a very rugged redoubt that most empires and, and states did not bother or to venture into and left people alone when they were in those high mountains. The Maronites sort of began moving into that mountain redoubt, partly uh, fleeing uh, Byzantine Christian. They had differences with the Byzantine church and the Byzantine state uh, around the 7th century. And then you had the Muslim conquests, and they had their differences with them as well. Uh, so the Maronites from the 7th and 8th centuries uh, had a very strong connection to this mountain area, which was really their refuge, uh, which is Mount Lebanon. The name of Lebanon goes back to the earliest writings. You see that name. It's in the Bible. Uh, it's in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the first recorded uh, human utterance at all. Uh, so their identity and their even their church liturgy uh, you know, puts Lebanon and Mount Lebanon in a very central place. Uh, for example, the Druze communities of Lebanon since the 11th century, 12th, 11th, and 12th century also have a very special connection because they fled persecution from Egypt and they also went up to these mountains for, for safety. Um, this uh, mountain area became an autonomous uh, principality, in effect, around the 15th century, uh, autonomous from the Ottoman Empire, which the Ottomans had taken over the, all the territories surrounding Mount Lebanon, which is, you know, Syria, what is today Syria, and much of today's Lebanon. And this uh, principality, which was ruled by a Druze uh, emir for a long time, then a Maronite emir for a long time, uh, was an autonomous government, as it were, uh, 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 under Ottoman suzerainty. And that long experience of both autonomy but also dependence on a larger power is almost something that's endured to this day, that Lebanon, yes, is autonomous, has its own politics and so on, but is also not fully sovereign and has had crippling dependencies on outside powers. So despite the dependencies on outside powers and, and so on, the Lebanese people throughout their history as a nation have kind of evoked a sense of sociocultural resilience, so to speak. 
Um, in your opinion, what would you say socially could be some of the reasons why this is and, and what makes the Lebanese people so resilient to some of the conflicts around, around them? Well, that's a very good question. A uh, number of reasons. One of, one of the reasons is hardship, that in the 19th and 20th, early 20th centuries, uh, Mount Lebanon in, in different phases went through some very difficult periods and caused waves of emigration to the U.S., to, to uh, Europe, to Australia. You see very sort of emigrant communities to South America, Brazil, Venezuela, Argentina, from more than a century ago. And that was one pattern that created global networks, uh, economic links, uh, cultural sophistication, if you wish. In other words, part of that hardship created a globalized Lebanese community before globalization was a thing. And that gives you a lot of resilience, that if things are bad at home, well, you have a relative in Argentina or somebody in Paris or somebody in Chicago, that creates a lot of resilience. Secondly, unlike in the 20th century, unlike many other states around them, which developed uh, states which provided public school, public welfare, did a lot of things for the people, uh, the Lebanese state was also kind of a largely a hands-off state that didn't provide that much for its people, partly because it was kind of a liberal economic model uh, and that people already, once the Lebanese state emerged, had reasonable levels of education and economic development to, to take care of themselves, as it were. There was also private school networks, private universities. So Lebanon developed more of a civil society and a free economy. Uh, and that creates also resilience in the sense that people are empowered, they're enabled, they're educated, they have started their own businesses, they're not dependent. So when the state collapsed uh, in the Civil War of 1975 to 1990, and still to this day is very dysfunctional, society has not collapsed. Uh, you know, people find workarounds. If there's no government electricity, you know, somebody will buy a generator and sell it to his neighbors. If the public schools are bad, you can go to a, you know, you try to open a private school or go to a private school. It, it has its enormous faults, but uh, it is also an element of resilience that has at least saved the society and the economy from, from complete collapse. So you mentioned, and there was a couple of questions during the uh, session, about the political system and the sharing of power mm -hmm. within the Lebanese government, specifically on ethno-religious lines. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that came to be and, and how that may play into the type of social resilience that, that could be there to this day? Yeah, this power-sharing system dates back to the 19th century and has an sort of arcane history. Uh, but it became part of the constitution of the modern state in the 1920s, uh, and it still is, an, is a, you know, an essential part or a major part of that system in 2018 today, which is that power is distributed and shared in all the positions of government. Uh, and it's shared on the basis of the religious communities and ethnic religious communities, because there's also Armenian Orthodox and Armenian communities as well. Um, and this system has its, you know, has its its benefits and its, 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 uh, its demerits or its problems, its supporters and its critics. On the plus side, uh, it ensures that 
uh, all communities at least feel that they have a, a share of power, that that's not under threat, that's not being challenged, that it's accepted by the other side, and they don't have to worry about it. Uh, that is an extremely important reassurance, especially when you look at recent developments in Iraq or in Syria where you know, communities have felt either that they had no power at all under previous regimes and dictatorships, or that at every election they have to defend their share and they have to fight to the death to make sure that they have something. Uh, on, the, on the negative side, it perpetuates these sectarian and ethnic identities as political identities. I mean, obviously, Muslim, Sunni is going to be, wants to follow that. It's, you know, it's a religious identity, but it makes it a political identity. And that's bad because it doesn't easily give you a way out of this type of system. Uh, but when we look at what's happened in Syria and in Iraq, uh, the alternative which was presented there previously, which was, well, dictatorship is the alternative. You know, don't share power, usurp power. And I must say that worked for a few decades, you know, worked, quote unquote. But uh, when it collapses, oh my God, I mean, it, it, it's like a, an eruption that devastates and, and, and then you have to build from scratch. And to my mind, I mean, Iraq now is a power-sharing system. Uh, it has its problems, it has its troubles, but nobody in Iraq could imagine anything else. I mean, you couldn't say, well, hey, wait a minute, let's give power to a dictator or a party. Nobody would accept that. Uh, and in Syria, uh, I would think, I mean, the dictatorship is trying to reassert itself through bloody-mindedness, bloody but I see no long term sustainable way that that could be a, a basis for government. There would have to be at some point an agreement and a sharing of power. Do you think that perhaps because of the diversity within the Levant, within Lebanon, that a gradual or eventual, you know, representative democracy like system could be an organic solution? Um, and well, to interrupt, the system is a representative democratic uh, system. Yes. Uh, you take the United States, right? You have a, a Senate. A Senate is a power-sharing system. You give North Dakota as much power as California uh, for your own reasons, that you want to make sure the North Dakotans, whatever, you know, or the slave states, when it was established, had power, and it's power-sharing in the Senate. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 and it's the U.S. also calls itself a representative democracy, although... Some people argue, hey, wait a minute, you know, the Electoral College is not exactly yeah. representative. The Senate, uh, Lebanon is a representative democracy with a power-sharing system, uh, but it's a democracy. Uh, it has its enormous faults, like many democracies do. There's enormous corruption. Hezbollah is there and doesn't, you know, it answers to Iran, not the Lebanese government. That's a whole other problem. But uh, it is a representative democracy, but one... That, that insists on sharing power. In the U.S. and in England and others, uh, you have a majoritarian system that whoever ekes by a slim majority in an election gets to fill all the executive branch seats, for better or for worse. Uh, in power-sharing systems, uh, the approach is different, that we don't want to exclude the other party or the other players from government just because we want 51% of the vote so the 49% get booted out, mm -hmm. that's a different choice. Uh, it's not necessarily a great choice, it's just a different choice. 
Do you think that having a power sharing system and a representative system in, in Lebanon, has it stavied off some conflict that could have occurred should there have been a change where, like in the United States, a majority could change the tide and, and, and do what, it, what they would want, despite the ethnic or socio-religious minorities being in opposition of that change? Well, in in the theory, I mean, to go back to what is majoritarian decision-making in the theory of democracy. In the theory of democracy, you go to a majority when you're sure that you have a homogeneous society. Uh, and the majorities in democracies are not supposed to be ethnic majorities. So in America, you would never say, oh, whites rule, because they're the majority, right? You share power, you know, even whatever you have, you know, if ethnic, ethnic uh, communities in the cabinet. And you would never say in America that uh, whites are the majority. Hence, purely, that's it. They should rule. So when, uh, when you look at things like racial divisions or ethnic divisions, what you mean by power sharing is that, uh, that no racial or ethnic or sectarian group is going to be excluded because simply they're a part of a different group. Mm. Uh, and that's how power-sharing systems emerge. Switzerland has a power-sharing system. Austria had one for a while. Malaysia has one. Lebanon has one. Iraq has one. And in those systems, you share power at one level, but the rest is majority-based, meaning within those shares of power, it's an electoral system. You can win an election, lose an election. A party can win. A party can lose. The people can change the direction of where the country is going through elections. Uh, but they cannot say that, oh, the Shiites will govern the country, or Maronites will, because like in Iraq, you could say, well, wait a minute, the Shiites, Arab Shiites are the majority, so game over, the Shiites should run everything. That does not make sense in democratic theory even, mm. uh, uh, because that is a sectarian majority, not a political majority. Sorry to belabor the point, but no, it's an important. One. It is important. It is important. Yeah. I think there's, and I think a lot of people, especially perhaps in the West, who were raised in a you know westernized sense of d democracy and representation, they perhaps. Well, that's why know, I indicate that you recognize power sharing in the Senate. You're familiar with your Senate. It's not democratic in the sense that it, it's, if you go by the numbers, it's it's not democratic. People are not equal. A uh, North Dakotan has 50 times more representativity than a Californian. But you accept that as part of power sharing. Uh, so that's how Americans might be familiar with it. Hmm. So looking at I what's... I nothing against North Dakota. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's a very nice place. I, I've been myself. Um, Indeed. A lot of beautiful uh, national parks and, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So switching... Switching things up a little, a little bit. Um, we we do know, and we got a chance to play some of the music that you've composed mm -hmm. and written um, prior to to your speech. And I really have to say, I I I'm as a as a fan of music, as a writer myself. Um, I find that music really can bridge the divides that we have, both socioculturally and politically. How did you get involved in composing music and developing music, and and what role does it play in in the studies that you yourself pursue? Uh, well, I fully agree that music is something that can not only bridge cultures and political divisions, but it bridges the gap between souls, as it were. You know, 
you can give a lecture to somebody and they might take notes and listen, but a song goes straight in, if you resonate with this, it goes straight straight into somewhere, your soul, your psyche or something. It's a very much more powerful, in a way, form of communication. So I fully agree with, with what you said about that. Uh, music has just been part of my life since I was a little kid. I grew up in the war in Lebanon, um, and uh, music was kind of a refuge for me. I'd you know, sit at home and just play the piano because couldn't go outside, it was dangerous and so on. And I am also been attracted to music as an intellectual pursuit, that it's, it's very interesting, you know, and composition, and uh, it's kind of very mathematical and very interesting as something to study. Uh, and I've been also struck that music has been a intellectual pursuit in Arab and Islamic culture about a thousand years ago. It was a high pursuit. It was, you know, you're a mathematician, astronomer, musician. And there were great works of, 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 you know, great works written about astronomy, optometry, this and that, and music. Uh, same thing in ancient Greek times, uh, where Pythagoras linked, uh, you know, mathematics to music, music to the music of the spheres and the heavens and so on. And of course, in Western culture, where classical music and composition was a high pursuit. Uh, uh, you know, reminds me of that book, Gödel, Escher, and Bach. You know, Bach was an intellectual genius. He was an Einstein. And I'm, so I'm also attracted to that aspect of music. And, and I try in my music and my composition to try to link things from the Western tradition to the Arabic tradition to, in my case, the Brazilian tradition, which I love very well, love very much, uh, as kind of an intellectual construct and trying to make from it beauty and music which in some cases works, some cases maybe not so well. So I'm attracted to many aspects of it. So and you can yeah. find that where music is online. It's on iTunes, on Pandora, YouTube. Making a plug for myself here. Yes, also Google Music as well. You could Google find, Music, yes. Yes. Um, so your music has been called uh, uh, Brazilian Arab music or Brazilian Middle Eastern. Is that something that you've yourself been uh, codified with developing or are there other musicians or composers that that pull from a similar type of genre yeah i i call my music arabic brazilian jazz uh because uh, and by you know brazilian is sort of jazz itself but there's also the sort of american jazz tradition which i also draw on very much. I'm kind of an amateur jazz musician, so I have that tradition in me. I love Brazilian music, rhythms and composition and poetry and so on, and I love Arabic music. So it's those three sources. Um, some others, uh, somebody like Ziad Rahmani, some people might be familiar with him, has done Arabic-Brazilian jazz uh, and done it very beautifully and very well. Uh, so I've learned a bit from his uh, experience. I hope I've brought some elements that are di a little bit different, a little bit new. I think I've used lyrics in a different way. Uh, I've taken sort of uh, some lyrical cues from uh, uh, sort of people like Bob Dylan or Elvis Costello, which is very much different, obviously, than what traditional Arabic lyrics writers or lyric writers go for, uh, and very different from what Ziad Rahbani did and what's in Brazilian. So I'm trying to mix and match a number of things. Uh, and you either like it or you don't like it, so I can't talk much about it, you gotta listen to it. 
I think that's wonderful. Um, do do you ever meet people who are surprised that you're both a a published scholar as well as a musician who has had works published throughout the world? Uh, yeah. Well, now not so much because they know, and I've you know for a long time I didn't really like. Not that I hid it, but I didn't sort of. Now I put it on my website, you know, on my bio, just to get it out there. So now I think people know. But oh yeah, it's been. Uh, I've had some very funny episodes where, well, when I first put out my first CD many years ago in Beirut. And like the local newspapers wrote, you know, so-and-so, CD and whatnot. Some of my academic friends called me denouncing this this uh, usurper who has my name, who's claiming to be me. And I said, no, no, calm down. It is actually me. You know, it's all right. Uh, so now it's, it's, I think people know and it's okay and normalized and, and fun. Now, you said that piano was the first instrument that you... Uh, well, piano and guitar. I and must, guitar? Yeah, from a very early age. Do you have a Do you have a favorite uh, instrument that you like to play on, or is it just like Have you ever experimented with instruments that perhaps are uniquely Lebanese? Well, piano is my favorite instrument. I just because it's such a, a rich and broad instrument, you can just spend spend hours just playing the piano, and that's sort of what I did during the war. We had a piano at home, and I would just spend hours. So I have like. A kind of a relationship with the piano it calms me down and so on I play guitar but it's not the same you, you can play the piano by itself you know because it, it has such breadth yeah I've uh, I mean I play something called the bouzouk which is a, a Arabic Kurdish actually instrument it's a little bit like the Greek bouzouki it's a steel stringed instrument a little bit I play a little bit I like to dabble with some of the Arabic percussions because I like the sounds I don't play them, so I have you know professionals come and play them. But I think I I get inspired, you know, by the sound of some of the percussion and what that brings. You know, it's very different than an, you know a, a drum set or a congas. You know, it's a different sound with a different feeling, uh, and that comes into then the composition and so on and bring that sound in. And obviously, some of the other Arabic instruments that I don't play at, at all. But I love and I'm inspired by like the uh, there's an Arabic sort of bamboo flute. It's a, not a reed instrument. It's just a, like a breathy flute, just the most sublime sounds called the nai in Arabic. There's the Arabic oud, which is sort of the precursor to what we call the guitar. It's not a fretted instrument. Beautiful tone, beautiful sound. There's the Arabic kanun, which is sort of like a zither. Uh, which is plucked, very compli- very complicated to play, but just has a magical sound. And then, of course, the Arabic percussion. So uh, in my music, in my concert, I held a concert in Beirut this July. I, I had friends of mine who play all those instruments join me on stage, and uh, yeah, they played. Was, was playing music, was it encouraged in your youth? I mean, in Lebanon, was his music and the practic- practition of playing and writing music, is that something that yeah. is encouraged? Well, in my family, certainly. I mean, my mom and dad. And uh, Lebanon, when I grew up, 60s, 70s, a very vibrant place of music and culture and bands and clubs and jazz clubs and nightclubs. And, of course, then we had a war. But even during the war, you know, sort of an underground scene, uh, so yeah, and Lebanon remains till this day a very vibrant musical, cultural place where these things are front and center. So we talked about resilience earlier. Mm-hmm. Do you think that music, and do you think that the cultural around music, maybe in port, more specifically jazz, yeah. helps to create a sense of resilience 
in a culture? And, and do you think that? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And we see it all over the Arab world, I think, and probably anywhere in the world. But, uh, um, you know, I don't know, Nietzsche said without music, life would be impossible, or music is an excuse for living or something. Uh, and, and the other arts as well. Uh, in all cases, art, whether it's music or film or the visual arts, is a form of sustenance, is something that feeds your life and feeds your soul and makes you happy or makes you feel things, makes, makes you live. You live in it. Uh, in particular, when other things are blocked in your life, if the country's having a civil war or you're unemployed or something difficult is happening in your life where you're not getting the normal things or some of them through other channels, uh, music, as everybody knows, either you know, going through adolescence or, you know, you turn on the radio, you put on your headphones, and you are living. Something is coursing through your soul, your psyche. So yeah, it's absolutely a form of living, which means resilience. And in the Arab world today, and I'll mention that in our institute, the Middle East Institute, we've launched an arts and culture program a few years ago where we're highlighting these, the arts, the music, the visual arts, the film, the hip-hop, the dance, the, uh, all these forms of living that people in the Middle East, uh, particularly the young people, uh, are creating. Uh, and all the more so when other avenues are blocked and they're having difficulties. This is a way, yeah, it is definitely resilience. Now, Regarding music and digital communication, I believe you yourself have a podcast as well. Would you like to talk a little bit about how that started or uh, give folks who are listening a way to be able to find uh, the content that you yourself produce? Mm -hmm. uh, yep, I host a podcast. It's called Middle East Focus. You can find it on your app or other places where you get your podcasts. Uh, it's uh, from the Our Middle East Institute, uh, and it's uh, weekly. It's 20 minutes every week. Uh, where we have different guests uh, focusing on contemporary uh, questions and issues and problems in today's Middle East. Uh, a lot of it is bad news, problems of the war in Yemen, the famine there, the war in Syria, the Iran issues, uh, developments throughout. We also highlight some of the arts and culture and other things as well. So, yeah, please tune in. It's only 20 minutes of your time. It's called Middle East Focus. Do you feel, in looking back at, at our discussion today, do you feel that having a place to dialogue, having a, a, a medium through which you can access information like your podcast, do you think that helps not only educate and help those who may be on the fence of misunderstanding get a better awareness of the issues at hand? Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, part of the good news of today's world is that everything is accessible and you can get things to people who need it or they can find it if they need it. Now, of course, there's a lot of fake news or there's, there's that you have to sift through as well. But uh, I'm happy that, I mean, running a think tank today in 2018, you have so many avenues to communicate what you know or what little you know or what others know to an audience anywhere in the world that is looking for it. Uh, through podcasts, through videos, through uh, public events that are also podcasted or videotaped, and then you can see them online. 
as well as through social media and the traditional means of, well, here's a paper if you want, if you have time and you want to go more in depth, read these 12 pages. But in the old days, the paper used to be the only way. Uh, and it's wonderful today that it is not the only way. And people now, in effect, although they are inundated with so many other demands on their time, they also have the time during their commute to listen to a podcast on the Middle East. They wouldn't be while driving their car reading an article about the Middle East so so they can get more out of it if if that's what they're looking for. And a final thought, looking down the road five or ten years in in the in the Middle East and in, in Lebanon, do you see any social change that might take us out of this tumultuous time? Do you, do you see the roots of it perhaps growing from this uh, cultural awareness of sharing ideas, music, and, and so on? Do you, do you see any well, trends? That's, yeah, that's a very it's a different set of complicated questions. I mean, the trends that are kind of causing the, the instability and the suffering and the civil war and the regional proxy war that we're seeing are not caused by in a sense, by this, directly by the social change, and so which is sort of more happening in the societies. I think those social changes, you yes, you did see them in the Arab Spring and those lovely initial moments of, uh, you know, these newly empowered communities and generations speaking out. But they were what they ran up against is a superstructure of states that were very rigid and authoritarian and pushed pushing back, states, some of which didn't really have a valid social contract with their population, so the country sank into civil war. And these movements emerged in a region that was at war with itself. Uh, Iran is sort of at war with many of its neighbors, or many of its neighbors are at war with Iran. Uh, Israel also has its problems with Iran. Israel has problems with the Palestinians, and still there is a lingering Israeli-Arab uh, conflict. You've had American armies coming in and out of the region. The U.S. you know, invaded and toppled the government in, in Iraq. Uh, so the there's a you know we don't have time to get into it, but there's a lot of reasons for the terrible conditions today that require solutions different than, well, the people are, you know, became, you know, growing and becoming empowered. Uh, the problems are at a different level. Um, and to summarize, I mean, we've got to first end the civil wars that are ongoing, and that ain't easy. Second, we have to end the regional wars, which is effectively Iran still at war, or its neighborhood at war with it, it at war with the neighborhood, it at war with the U.S., U.S. at war with it, it at war with Israel. That is, you know, a conflict system all its own. That needs to be de-escalated. De and the Israeli-Palestinian and Israeli-Arab, Israeli-Muslim thing must be de-escalated. Uh, sadly, that those things don't seem to be happening very quickly. So, But we need more time than what we have in this podcast. But uh, all I'm saying is that uh, the populations themselves, uh, just by their evolution sadly won't be able, you know, to create the ends of those civil wars and regional wars. requires more heavy lifting from from governments and, and you know, more top 
uh, you know, top top attention. So more work to be done all around. Oh yeah, and more work to be done at you know that's why maybe at the Middle East Institute we focus a lot in addition to arts and culture and all of that on politics and policy. And the U.S. has to do a lot. The U.N. has to do a lot. Uh, governments in the region have to work out their differences. Israel has to work out its differences with Palestinians. All of that is sort of at the policy level. Uh, what we emphasize in the arts and culture level is the human side. Is that you know at the end of the day. We're just people. Everybody's just people wanting to live a life and be safe and secure and raise their families and enjoy their life. Uh, whether you're Iranian or Jewish or Muslim or Druze or atheist or LGBTQ, or, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, art and culture brings brings that profound reality forward. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew, and uh, we thank the listeners. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Building Bridges, brought to you by ACMCU. Follow us on Twitter, at ACMCU, and like our Facebook page, at acmcu.georgetown. Feel free to submit any questions and tune in for upcoming episodes.